Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning. And so we just invite you to go ahead and turn there. We're continuing our way through the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul has found himself arrested by the Roman Tribune and the guards there in in Jerusalem. And uh, he is being accused, obviously, by the the Jews who are gathered there with him of uh, falsely teaching against the temple and teaching against the law of Moses. And, And so he has pled Roman citizenship to the Roman tribune. And as a result, the tribune now is looking to uh, more accurately establish the charges against Paul. And so we pick it up in, in, verse, in chapter 23. I'm just going to read, this, this won't be on the screen this morning, but I'm just going to read the tail end, the, the last verse of, verse of chapter 22. And so I'm going to read from there. Uh, and then as is our custom, we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us. And then we'll dig in and, and get to work. So chapter 22, verse 30 to chapter 23, verse 11. It says, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul and set him before them. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, going to, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And then those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the, Pharisees, of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, such heated argument there that they turned violent, when it became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must testify also in Rome. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, this morning your people gather to hear your word. We pray, God, that as we ponder and as we reflect upon the Holy Scriptures spoken from you, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, which inspired Luke to write this account, would also open our hearts and our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate the passage before us and that you would grant to your people the ability to see deeply into what is happening here in this particular text, that through it we would be instructed, that we would be edified. And we pray, God, this morning that you would strengthen our faith in our walk with you. Lord, we ask this morning that as we begin once again to labor, to minister for the glory of your name, that we would seek approval and acceptance only from you, O Lord. We pray, God, this morning that you would give us clear consciences, pure heart. And we pray, Lord, that you would open us to understand what it means to love as you would have us to love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Was it the best thing that she could have done? Or was there a better way for her to have used that ointment? It was the night before the crucifixion of Jesus, as they, sorry, it was the week of the crucifixion of Jesus, and as they have gathered for a dinner party at Simon the leper's house, one particular woman came and seeking to perform a blessing for Jesus, took a very expensive bottle of perfume, shattered it, and poured it over the Lord. Immediately there was indignation from the disciples gathered there, led by Judas Iscariot, who began to question and to rebuke her. Why was this really expensive bottle of perfume not sold for 300 denarii and that money given to the poor? Now, as she's wrestling with that question, she's probably asking herself questions that you and I have asked ourselves time and again. My desire is to serve God. I want to bless God. Did I do the best thing with what I had? Did I take what the Lord had given me and did I use it in a way that would be pleasing and accepting to him? Yes, I took this bottle of ointment and I anointed Jesus with it. But what if God would have preferred that I had given the money to the poor? What if God would have rather that I had done something else with this? At the end of the day, knowing that we are flawed and broken individuals, one of the questions that we are going to wrestle with sooner or later is what I have done acceptable in his sight. The same question that this dear woman struggled with thousands of years ago is a question that you and I are going to struggle with. I'm sure many of us probably already have. If not, you will soon enough. And this morning, as we look at this particular text from Acts chapter 23, what I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul undoubtedly struggled with those same questions, but the encouragement and the comfort, in fact, the cheer that he needed came from none other than the Lord himself. And you and I this morning can know that what we do is accepted by God when we do it from a pure heart, acting in love with a good conscience and a sincere 
faith. Look with me, Acts chapter 23, verse 1. The Apostle Paul has been arrested. He is being held by the Roman cohort there in Jerusalem. And they immediately, they had put him before the crowd the day before. Of course, the crowd was violently trying to, uh, to have him stoned to death as a result of his testimony. He had spoken to them in their native language, a language which probably the tribune did not understand. At the conclusion of his testimony, they immediately try to kill him. They say, away with such a man. He doesn't deserve to live. And the Roman tribune orders him to be brought back into the fortress where he could be examined by flogging only to have in that fatal moment the Apostle Paul say, you know, I really don't think you can do this to a Roman citizen. Fearing greatly as a result of the consequences of seizing and detaining a Roman citizen without a trial, without, probably, without the conviction of testimony and evidence and all of this, the uh, tribune seeks to understand exactly what it is that all of these Jews are infuriated at, what it is that Paul has said that has led this mob to wanting to kill him. And so he calls members of the council. This is probably the Sanhedrin. And what is fascinating is that they probably gather somewhere outside of the Fortress Antonia. They're not in the normal meeting chambers of the Sanhedrin because Gentiles would not have been allowed there. The Roman cohort, the guards go with Paul. The tribune goes with Paul. And they gather together this council, probably the Sanhedrin, a group of about 70 men comprised of the chief priests, the Sadducees, as well as Pharisees, a mixed company of Jewish leaders. And the question that he has is, what exactly is it that this man is guilty of? This is what the tribune wants to know. And so he asks the council to explain it to him. The council gathers around. Again, they're not in their normal meeting places because the Gentiles wouldn't have been allowed in those hallowed chambers. So they're at some place, we're not sure where, the scriptures don't tell us. They're at some place outside the Fortress Antonia where all the Roman soldiers can gather and where all these guys can gather. It's probably a large group, and Paul is there in the midst of them. And Paul begins to explain what is going on. Verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul says, brothers... I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Verse 2, you hear that statement, I have lived my life in all good conscience, and you think, okay, all right, let's hear it. What what else you got to say? I mean, if you hear that statement, you're not immediately enraged, are you? Of course not. But Ananias is. Paul says, brothers, I have lived my life in all all good conscience before God up until this very day. And immediately Ananias is enraged. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And so they punch him in the face. He says, I am standing before you today with a clear conscience. Ananias is like, Mm-mm, punch him. They nail him. And he turns around, and of course he's a little bit enraged because that seems to you and me like a perfectly reasonable testimony to start off with. Hey, man, I'm, I'm innocent. Pfft, oh, just punch me in the face. And so he begins to rebuke this man who gave the order. He doesn't appear to know that the man who gave the order was in fact the high priest. So he tears off, he says, He says in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to law, and yet contrary to law, you order me to be struck, which is perfectly valid? They are here to judge the Apostle Paul. He has just begun his defense, enraged by his claim that he has lived his whole life in clear conscience. They punch him. They have him punched. And Paul says, this is against the law. And he he rebukes this guy. He does not know that he's the high priest. He says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I just got to tell you, in my life, I have said, I have accused people of things. I have made slanderous statements. I've called people names. Almost always, almost always, it was wrong and it was not a good thing to say. But the statement that Paul even makes here, I think, is acceptable. He calls him a whitewashed wall. Within, within Israel, within the homes there, they would have walls sometimes put within houses that were not load-bearing. And they would be put up with mud and painted white. They would be washed white. And so it wasn't a load-bearing wall. It wasn't a significant wall within the, within the house, within the dwelling. And so they were called whitewashed walls, meaning they were false walls. They were not load-bearing walls. They were not substantive walls. They, they looked like a wall, but they weren't what you would consider a real wall within the house. And so when this individual commands that Paul be struck contrary to the law, his belief is you are here gathered today claiming to uphold the law, claiming to be a pillar of God's law, and yet contrary to law, you have struck me. And he is saying to this individual, God will judge that. You cannot claim to uphold God's law and then in contravention of God's law, order me to be struck That is no different than you being a whitewashed wall. That is a fake wall upholding the roof, pretending to be upholding the roof or upholding the law, and you're clearly not. If only we had cool names to call each other like that. I mean, Paul was just such a sharp guy. Even when he's calling names, he's doing it in a biblically correct way. Of course, they say, hey, uh, you know that's the high priest, right? Hmm. And there's that conscience again. I've lived my life before God all the way up until this very day with a clear conscience. They say, oh, that's, that's the high priest. How was it that Paul didn't know that he was the high priest? Again, he isn't wearing his formal robes. This is not happening in the traditional chambers where the Sanhedrin would have met. So he's probably, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, he's probably in his civvies. That is, he's not in uniform. He's in his civilian clothes. And so Paul probably didn't know that this was the high priest. You say, is that really realistic? I mean, it's Ananias. Surely he knew who the high priest was. It's likely that he probably could have identified Ananias by facial recognition. But again, the apostle Paul seems to have had some sort of a physical condition where he probably didn't have the greatest eyesight, And some scholars have attributed this to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Other scholars have said it was some other kind of physical ailment. We don't really know, but it does seem apparent from what he says to the churches of Galatia, he had some sort of a problem with his eyesight. He couldn't see clearly. And so here he is on trial before this whole group of men, and you've got the high priest who's probably standing at some distance from the apostle Paul, hence the command to those standing near him to strike him. He's not dressed in his normal robes, and he, so he's in his civilians, and then Paul probably can't see him at that distance, and so he accuses him of being a whitewashed wall, which is a theologically correct 
name to call him at this point. But when they say to Paul, this is the high priest, he's like, oh, I I didn't know that because Scripture says you will not speak ill of a ruler of your people. And he knows that's what the Word of God says. So he, he sort of gives this apology. But he makes this statement, I have lived my life before God all the way up until this day with a clear conscience. Now, what exactly does that mean? We know the Apostle Paul, as a Jew, acting on behalf of the Sanhedrin with letters from the chief priests, had permission to go and arrest Christians and throw them into jail. We also know that when Stephen was martyred all the way back in Acts chapter 7, it was Paul, as he just gave his testimony in the preceding chapter, it was Paul who was there watching over the garments and the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen. Surely, surely Paul can't be meaning that he did everything righteous in his life. Surely that can't be what he means because he says later on in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, that of all the sinners in the world, he is the chief. He is the foremost. And he talks about his life before he knew Christ. Surely Paul doesn't mean that everything he's done in his whole life has been right. And yet he says, I have lived all my life up until this very day in good conscience. And that statement so enrages Ananias that he has him struck. Now, what's going on here? What is happening in this particular passage? Why is Ananias so bothered by that statement? Let's start off by asking this question. When we say conscience, what do we mean? You probably have heard of having a good conscience or having a conscience that is bothering you, that is convicted. When the Bible uses this word conscience, it's talking about the faculty that we possess within our souls or within our hearts that passes moral judgment on our actions. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Romans, makes the statement, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. He goes on, he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, what Paul has just said there to the church in Rome is that Gentiles who do not have God's word, do not have the law, still show some understanding of morality. They have an understanding of a moral law that has been written on their hearts, even though they don't have God's word. They know what is right and what is wrong. And when they live according to what they know is right and wrong, he says their thoughts accuse them if they do what is wrong, or they excuse them if they know that they may have messed up, but they had the best of intentions. Paul, in that particular passage, is alluding to the conscience, this idea that when you do things, you have this sort of, this this faculty or this power within your heart that passes judgment on the things that you do. I had an experience of this when I was a young man attending school. I can remember very clearly in grade four, my teacher did something that was grievously tempting to me as a grade four student. I shared this with my Old Testament class this last week, talking again about conscience. When I was in grade four, my teacher thought it would be helpful to her students if we would be permitted to grade our own homework assignments, because then we would, assuming we were being honest, see 
what it was we had done wrong. If we had the opportunity to grade our homework assignments, and if we were going to do it honestly, then we would know what it was we had done wrong. We would see clearly the mistakes we had made, and we would be even further educated as a result of that. Sounds great, right? I just want to put your mind at ease. No teacher at First Baptist Classical Academy is so naive as that. All right, we understand it's important for students to see what it is that they have done wrong, but we also understand a little something about the human heart. It's wicked from birth, and it will rebel. And I have to confess to you, I did this as well. I thought to myself, and I thought I was rather clever and sophisticated, hmm, what I will do is I will do the majority of my homework assignment and uh, I'll grade it and see what I really made. And then I'll give myself just a few extra points. And so that very fateful first time that I was allowed to grade my own homework assignment, I made a 92% out of a potential 100, but I turned in a 96 as my grade. In this day and age, the teacher didn't have Excel spreadsheets. Not every classroom had a computer in it. She went back. She got one of those old-fashioned grading books. She flipped it open. She got a little red pen. That was the official color of teachers back in the day. And she would sit there, and she'd call us out by name in alphabetical order. She comes to Clay Camp. Clay Camp, what'd you make? I made a 92 in all honesty, but I thought, I'll tell her I made a 96. That's just a few points off. It's just one math problem. And then if she, for whatever reason, decides to call all of the math sheets in and she looks at it, she'll see that I actually made a 92, but that I told her I made a 96. And if she calls me in to question me about it, I'll be able to say, oh, oh, it was was a mistake. I, I must have messed up. I will cover my first lie with another lie in the event that I get caught in my first lie. And so I planned out my sequence of lies in order to get away with it. She called in the grades. I told her I made a 96. I waited there, beads of sweat pouring down, feeling so torn up in my soul, knowing what I had done was wrong, believing that God would strike me dead sooner or later that day. And I just waited with my head bowed for her to call for the papers to be passed in. After a period of time, I realized that she was teaching a different subject. The day had advanced. The teacher had progressed. There was a new lecture underway. She hadn't called in the paper. I thought, surely there's a fluke. It will come later in the day. We went through the day. Three o'clock rolled around. Class was dismissed. I went home. The sun was shining, and the birds were chirping. And it was not the end of the world. I didn't believe it at first. I thought, I'll go to sleep. I'll wake up, and then tomorrow I will be held accountable. I went to bed. I woke up the next day. The sun was shining. The birds were chirping. And I thought, huh, somehow I got away with it. Well, it progressed from there. I was asked that day to grade my next homework assignment, and I thought, why bother doing all of the homework? I'll just do some of it, and whatever happens, I will just tell her that I got 100%. My brothers to this day, my, my twin brother, was in. We, we had the same class together, and to this day he makes fun of me at uh, family gatherings whenever we get together. He'll, he'll, he'll call me 100% Josh. <laughs> I, I had a sing-songy voice in which I would report my grade to the teacher. 
She's going down the list of names alphabetically, you know, uh, <laughs> Bowden, I forget all the teachers, all the students in front of me, but there was Bowden and uh, I don't know, there was, I don't remember all the students in front of me, but she'd go through the name alphabetically and she'd come to Clay Camp and Jacob, Clay Camp would come first because Jacob comes before Joshua, even though I'm the oldest and he knows that. Um, and uh, she would say, Jacob, Clay Camp, he'd say, you know, 80 or whatever the grade was, 80%. And she'd say, Clay Camp, Joshua. And I'd say, 100. And that sort of, you know, sing-songy voice of self, self-judgment is what that was. And this went on for a period of time. And one day, it occurred to me that I wasn't doing any of my math homework when we were given time in class to do math homework, I was drawing pictures of G.I. Joe and, and uh, various fun adventures and not doing any of my math homework and then, and then turning in 100. And I kept getting away with it and getting away with it. And it spread to other subjects. It was my language arts. It was my grammar. It was various different subjects where I was called upon to grade my own work. And then one day, and then one day the teacher sprung a pop test on us. And immediately, where I had felt very comfortable lying and cheating and deceiving my teacher, I began to get very, very nervous, and I felt very convicted. Oh, this is it, the moment of truth, where I don't really know what I'm doing. The teacher handed out the the pop quiz, and we had to do a series of math problems on this pop quiz, but amazingly enough, something interesting happened. I took the pop quiz, and I made a good grade on it. We handed it back into the teacher. She graded it, and I made a 96%. Somehow, through no fault of my own and with no credit to myself, God had blessed me somehow with an ability just to listen and to totally cheat on all of the work and to do none of the work, and yet somehow to supernaturally, I don't know how to attribute this, but through the gifts and the blessing of God and through no, no character, no noble act of my own, I retained those principles, and I was able to take the quiz, and I was able to do good on the quiz. I made a 96%, which was not that far off from my 100 that I had turned in every single class period for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. The next day, she came to Kenny Wattridge. This was what I call my Kenny Wattridge moment. He sat right behind me, and she sat down to talk to Kenny. She kind of got down close on his level to talk to him at his desk. She intended for it to be a private conversation, but he sat right behind me, so I heard everything that was said. And she said, Kenny, I've got your quiz here. And for the last several weeks, you've been making high A's, low A's on all of your homework assignments. And yet, when I give you this quiz, you bombed it completely. She says, Kenny, is there anything you want to tell me? And Kenny Wattridge laid his head down on his desk and he says, it's all a lie. I've been cheating this whole time and I knew I was going to get caught. And so she took Kenny and she took him to the principal's office. In that moment, I knew this is God's grace in my life. He wants me to confess and to come clean. He's giving me this warning through Kenny Wattridge. Perhaps you've had a Kenny Wattridge moment. Perhaps you know there's been a time in your life in which your conscience has been hardened, and yet God still gives you this little warning, this one last opportunity. Don't do what I did. I went home that afternoon, having not confessed, having not repented, 
and believing that it was the end of the world. And I went home, and the sun was still shining, and the birds were still chirping. I got up, and nothing happened, and I didn't get caught. And I felt less guilty day by day, more confident in my ability to deceive the teacher, to beat the system, and to get away with it. And day by day, I would go home having not done my homework. The sun was shining, and the birds were chirping. And I thought, God is okay with this because I am really smart, and I don't need to do my homework. And then I had my Lindsay Young moment, which I never saw coming. There was a girl in my class. Her name was Lindsay Young. And perhaps you have had a Lindsay Young moment. And perhaps some of you are on the verge of a Lindsay Young moment. It's that moment in which circumstances beyond your control, under the sovereign direction of God, unfold in such a way that God catches you. Not that he didn't know what you were doing, but he exposes the sin and the corruption in your life. My Lindsay Young moment, there was a girl, her name was Lindsay Young. She had caught strep throat. She had missed five days of class. She missed like a whole week of school. And she'd come back and she'd done her makeup work and the teacher was grading her makeup work. And it was actually language arts. She had the grammar book in front of her and she was grading it. And she couldn't remember how many points she counted off for each wrong mistake in the grammar assignment. And so in order for the teacher to remind herself of what it cost per problem, she thought, I'll go grab another student's book and look in it really quick and just see what I had told them to count wrong for every, everything they got wrong. And she walked across a sea of desks. She didn't go to the desk that was nearest to her desk. No, 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 no. For whatever reason, she crossed past several desks, five, six, seven desks, to get to my desk, which was all the way in the middle of the room. And she reached by God's sovereign, divine guidance into my desk and pulled out my book and flipped it open to see what she had asked me to count wrong on each problem. And lo and behold, there in that book, there was not one shred of work done. And she took that book back to her grade book and she sat my book next to her grade book and in her grade book it said that I had made 100% on that assignment. That was my Lindsay Young moment. And that afternoon, while unbeknownst to me, I was being caught red-handed through circumstances beyond my control. As I was at home enjoying my afternoon, The sun was shining, and the birds were chirping. So often what we think is that because circumstances in our life are good, because nothing is seeming to go wrong, that God is good with us. But all along, we are living in sin against him. Our conscience is confronting us, but we continue to ignore it time and time and time. We ignore it, we disobey it, and what happens is that over time, our conscience stops functioning. Within scriptures, this conscience is mentioned on a number of occasions. Don't flip there, just listen. It'll be on the screen. The scriptures speak of a weak conscience. This is a conscience that is not informed by scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, It should be on the screen. Natika is totally in the message. There it is. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. In other words, it's not a strong conscience. It's a weak conscience. That is, they know that eating food, they believe that eating food offered to idols is sinful, but they don't have the conviction to stand against it. They see other Christians who know it doesn't really matter what kind of food we eat, whether it's been offered to idols or not, because we know that's all just bogus, but they see other Christians eating food offered to idols, and they think it's okay. And their conscience is being weak. That is, not having a strong resolve within them, they go along with what they wrongly think is sinful behavior. And so the Apostle Paul says, being weak, their consciences are further defiled. That is, they are further made impure. They go along with what they believe to be wrong. Your conscience passes judgment, moral judgment on your moral actions. And if you betray that conscience, you hurt your conscience, whether or not your conscience was properly informed. Now, in this particular passage, what the Apostle Paul is alluding to is the fact that they didn't even have a correct understanding that it was okay to eat meat offered to idols so long as you weren't worshiping the idol. The meat doesn't matter, the sacrifice doesn't matter, and you can go and eat the meat and it doesn't even matter. But they didn't know that. And so in this particular passage, their conscience is weak, they don't have the resolve of their convictions, but number two, their conscience isn't properly informed. Many people claim the conscience as though it's an infallible guide to how we should live our lives, and yet we see here within the scriptures that that is not the case. A properly informed conscience can guide us, but if it's not properly informed, it is a false Guide, a sundial will read the wrong time of day if there is some other light shining on it than the sun. That's what we see here with the Apostle Paul. Weak consciences, not properly informed, can be defiled when observing the behavior of other Christians. Of course, that wounds the conscience even further. Within that same passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, the Apostle Paul goes on and says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Which means that we have to have a proper regard for each other's conscience, whether or not our consciences are grounded in the truth of God's Word, And we need to take care that we explain to each other from time to time the rationale and the motivation for our actions, and we are careful to make sure everyone understands that our actions are grounded in an understanding of God's word. It's not arbitrary, and it's not just what we want to do. Of course, if we don't do that, then sooner or later, conscience becomes defiled. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, To the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled, he says, to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. If we continue to live in sin against our conscience, if we continue to engage in behavior that we think is wrong, sooner or later, the scriptures say, our conscience becomes evil. In Hebrews chapter 10 the, the author of Hebrews encourages the church there in Jerusalem to draw near to God. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and, of course, our bodies washed with pure water. This is obviously a reference to baptism. This evil conscience where now it is no longer passing the correct moral judgment 
we're engaging in actions which are evil, but we no longer believe them to be evil. This is the, at the heart of so much of what is called today progressivism, where we look on the behavior of the past. We even look at the behavior that we believe to be morally correct once upon a time, but we tell ourselves that we can behave in a way that is contrary to what we initially suspected was false, and we continue to celebrate that wrong behavior, and we continue to encourage it, and we say, you know, this is just a vestige, this, this feeling of conflict, this feeling of guilt, this is just a vestige of a forgotten morality from a previous day. That, is, that mentality is at the heart of what undermines or underlies so much of what is called progressivism today, to ignore our conscience and to encourage others to do the same. The scriptures call that an evil conscience. And if we go on long enough that way, we do irreparable harm to our conscience. As it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul Warning the church at Ephesus, warning Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There are going to be people who are going to teach what they know is false, but they're going to be so committed to it, they have become committed to it through the deception of demonic influences, and they continue to press these things that are lies, believing them to be true because they have so thoroughly seared their conscience. This is a reference to burns. You sear your skin, you burn your hand, you lose sensation where the scar tissue grows back so that you no longer feel with that part of your skin. And the Apostle Paul says that can happen to your conscience when you push for things that are evil, when you push for things that are wicked. Over time, you're no longer able to restore that aspect, that faculty that God has blessed you with. You have permanently wounded it. All of this underlies the background of what the Apostle Paul is saying to Ananias, to all the Sanhedrin. The Apostle Paul's statement was this, I have acted in good conscience up until this very day. What is the accusation that is being made against Paul? They're saying that he seeks to undermine the law, that he is teaching against Judaism, that he is trying to overthrow all of the customs and all the traditions of Israel as he's going out and teaching all the Gentiles about Jesus Christ. Paul's perspective was this. I have tried to be faithful to Judaism my whole life. It's not to say that everything he did was right, but his whole life he has always believed that what he has been doing is right. His statement to Ananias is, I am a true Jew. I have lived like you, like all the Sanhedrin here, in obedience to what I thought the scriptures were teaching me until that fateful day that Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. And ever since Christ has appeared to me, ever since Christ revealed himself to me, ever since I had my eyes opened, though in that fateful moment the Apostle Paul was blinded, ever since that day, as he's made this radical shift to follow Jesus Christ, he has lived his life in all good conscience. 
Now, the Apostle Paul be quick to say his life before he knew Christ was lived in sin, but he was not conflicted over the sin. He did not think that the way he was living was wrong. He thought it was his religious duty to persecute Christians. He was wrong in that, but his conscience didn't trouble him until he met Jesus Christ. And now, preaching Jesus, preaching the gospel, preaching the cross, his conscience still doesn't trouble him. The implication being for Ananias and all of the Sanhedrin who are there, hey, you think you're following God. I was exactly like that. But now a change has taken place. Now I've seen Jesus. And so the implication is if Paul is now living his life in good conscience, in obedience to the Messiah, which is what he is preaching, then that means Ananias and all those gathered there cannot make the same claim. Their conscience has to be defiled or corrupted or evil or seared as a result of the message that Paul is preaching to them, which they refuse to hear. It is an insult for the leader of Israel who is responsible for guiding the nation in holiness and righteousness to be called by contrast with Paul, who believes himself to be acting with a clear conscience, to be saying to them, you therefore can't be acting with a clear conscience. So he says, strike him on the mouth, proving Paul's point. You claim to be informed by the law. You claim to uphold the law. And yet, in this moment, you break the law. Paul makes an accusation. It's subtle, it's clever, but it's present nonetheless. I'm clear in my conscience. Punch that guy. You claim to uphold the law, but you don't. You're violating the law, which should inform your conscience, but does not. So they begin to argue, and we come to this next point, the point of doctrine. A house divided cannot stand. Sooner or later, a house divided collapses. We have two groups of individuals here who have been called to condemn Paul, to judge him according to their law. And what's fascinating is these two different groups of individuals read the scriptures in two radically different ways. You have, on the one hand, the group of Sadducees, and on the other hand, you have the group of the Pharisees. The Sadducees are what we would call theological liberals. They like the Bible. It's cool, but they don't really believe all, that, all the stuff that's in it. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They reject most of the miracles. There are lots of things in the Bible that are just like, whatever, we're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Whereas the Pharisees, they are super strict. They believe everything the Bible teaches. As they look at their walk with God, though, they believe that they can actually live in a perfectly righteous manner before God. They've missed the thrust of the law, which is that they need God. They must depend upon God. And looking at all of the ways in which Israel has failed in its history over the years, they come to power and they begin to prescribe a certain course of action for the nation of Israel, namely that the average everyday Joe in Israel should be seeking to live his life honoring the purity and the, the ceremonial ritual laws that are prescribed only for the high priest. That's where all these restrictions around Sabbath come from. That's where all these restrictions around all the different things that you have to do that come from. These are different things the Pharisees added to the law. It's what they call a hedge 
around the law, and they called Israel to honor that hedge in order to make sure that they didn't violate the law. So on the one hand, you have the Sadducees who enjoy their power and their prestige, but don't really take the Bible seriously. And then you have the Pharisees who also don't take the Bible seriously in the sense that when it convicts them of their need for God, they deceive themselves into thinking that they don't need to depend upon God, but they can actually honor and keep this thing. It results in the legalistic teachings that they put forward. And both of these groups of individuals now come together to try to condemn Paul. Paul, as he's on trial before this group of very divided individuals who read the scriptures in very, very different ways, perceiving that there's a divided company that has been called together to judge him, strikes right at the heart of their division. He cries out, verse 6, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And immediately chaos ensues. They begin to argue. They begin to debate. And as we look at this particular passage, we recognize that what Paul is testifying to is the glory of the hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. That's what he's been testifying to the day before, and that's what he reiterates today. The reason I'm here is because I'm telling you the Messiah has come, and he has risen from the dead. The reason I'm on trial is because I believe in the resurrection. And as we think about the resurrection today, we recognize it is a doctrine that people find disturbing. Why? Why are people bothered by the idea of the resurrection? Why would the Sadducees be bothered by this? The reason being, if this life is all there is, if there is no resurrection, if we pass on into some spiritual state of existence, then it reduces the moral demand of the moment. If there is no resurrection, then the immediate present becomes most urgent. And if there is no resurrection, then it suggests that there are things which are most important to achieve right now and that there, are not, there is nothing that should be delayed. There should be no delay in gratification. We got to have what we need. We got to have it right now because time is scarce. Tomorrow we die. But if there is a resurrection, then we never outrun our past. This is where it really particularly begins to haunt. If it is true that we are raised from the dead in a physical body to stand before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, then it is true that everything we have done will come under his gaze. If it is true that this life is not all there is and that there is another life, a full life, a true life, an eternal life that is coming, then it is undeniable that how we conduct ourselves from day to day has to be done in good conscience with a view to the eternal and without prioritizing the urgency, whatever we might consider to be most urgent, in this present moment. The philosophy, the ends justify the means, is completely dismissed if it is true, and it is true, that there is a resurrection from the dead. Jesus 
made this statement in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The resurrection, just like the cross, drives people nuts. Because it means that it isn't merely what we are striving for, but it is how we go about seeking to attain our ends that matters to the Lord. There is such a thing as doing something the wrong way, even if you are doing it for the right reasons. There is such a thing as the morality of what you're doing, not merely the goal for which you are striving. And if there is a resurrection, it only reinforces that truth that we must seek to do God's will, his goal, in his way. We cannot just chase headlong after whatever we think God wants, ignoring the manner in which he calls us to live. This was completely dismissed by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees, you see, they're not even really as interested in the resurrection. When Paul cries out, I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection, notice the argument that they make. They take his side, but not for the sake of the doctrine that he preached. He says, I am on trial because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees immediately take his position because he claims to be a Pharisee and they're Pharisees, but notice what they say. They say, verse 9, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? They're not holding to the resurrection so much as they're holding to their theological position. And they're holding to their theological position not from a statement of love or from a statement of faithfulness to God, but from the superiority of their position relative to the Sadducees. Hey, 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 you guys really are theologically out to lunch. He's heard from a spirit or an angel. What he's saying is that he's heard from a resurrected reigning son of God. What he's actually saying is that, yes, a man come back from the grave appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He's not saying that he heard from an angel. He's not saying he heard from a spirit. He heard from Jesus in the flesh. That's what he's claiming. And as a result, he's saying the hope of the resurrection proven by Christ is why I'm on trial. They immediately get in an argument and the Pharisees say, no, we can't condemn this man because maybe he actually did hear from a spirit or an angel. They're not thinking about the resurrection. They're thinking about their own theological position and winning the argument with the Sadducees. Paul, understanding all of this, continues to preach the gospel. The outcome of it, from start to finish, is that these guys get into a fight. It gets so violent that the Roman soldiers come, they grab him, they have to drag him back into the barracks in order to protect him, to keep him safe. And so there he is, believing he's preaching the gospel, and yet the outcome of all of his efforts, despite his best attempts to preach the gospel, to help people to see there is a hope, there is a resurrection, and we will live again, the outcome of all of it is that now the Sanhedrin is divided, and people still want to kill him. And he is locked in jail, away from the opportunity to preach. Have you ever been there where you tried to do your best, it didn't go as you thought it would 
And now you are in the quiet of your own room, in the solitude of your own mind, wondering, could I have done something different? If I'd only said this, or if I'd only preached it this way, Paul surely believing this was his great moment to preach to Israel and hoping against hope that maybe the Holy Spirit would come and convict, they would believe in Jesus and repent, finds himself, number one, they didn't believe, they didn't repent, they mischaracterized what I preached, and I'm in jail no longer with any more opportunities to preach to these guys. Do you think he's discouraged? I'm sure he is. He's come to this moment where he's tried his best. He's gotten punched in the face for it, He's had his words mischaracterized and twisted, and now he is still in jail. And it's in this moment that the Lord comes to him. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God is cheering up the Apostle Paul. First, God cheered him up with his presence. If everyone else is going to abandon the Apostle Paul, Jesus is going to keep company with him. And that is all Paul needs. If everyone else is going to despise him and revile him and twist his words and mischaracterize what he's saying... The Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus is there with him. Luke is saying Jesus was there with Paul. And Paul took pleasure in the company of Christ. The Lord who had stood for him at the cross now stands by him in prison. The Lord who had called to him from out of heaven, who had washed him in his blood, who had commissioned him to be his apostle, who had sustained him time and again in labors and trials, now visits him in his prison cell. The Apostle Paul has had correct doctrine, preaching the resurrection. He's had a clear conscience. The circumstances, nevertheless, have still gone sideways. He's wondering, was it enough? Was it sufficient? And Jesus is there with him in his prison cell to cheer him up. It's a dungeon. It's a prison. It's dark, but the glory of God was with him in that cell. Number two, God cheered Paul by telling him that he accepted his testimony. Look at what he says. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He says, as you have testified about the facts. We're looking at this and we're like, man, this was quite a melee of confusion and chaos. People are fighting. It's turning violent. The guards have to drag them out and put them in the barracks. If that's you and me, it's like, well, maybe I didn't really nail all those major points in the gospel. You know, I've got this five-point outline. Jesus loves us and we're born sinners. And, you know, you go through this whole process. You've got like a Roman's road or maybe a faith outline. You're like, I got to hit up all these points in order to make sure people have enough information that they can trust in Jesus. And things go sideways. The conversation turns south and you're left wondering, did I really explain it all the way? Was I clear? They didn't accept it. But Jesus accepted it. He says, you testified to the facts about me for all the confusion, for all the chaos. 
It doesn't matter the response of the audience. It matters whether or not it was pleasing in the Lord's sight. And so he encourages Paul by saying, you testified to the facts about me. And last of all, he makes a promise. Just as you have testified to the facts about me, he says, you will also testify in Rome. It is good to know that the Lord still has need of your services. You're not such an utter failure that he says, okay, time for you to be on the bench. No more of this. Or, oh man, you've made such a hash of this, I'm calling you home. Time for you to come up to heaven now. That isn't what God said to Paul. You testified about the facts. I accept that. You have more to do. Many, many years ago, when I was young and dumb, I can remember a night in which I was in school and I was praying and talking to the Lord. It was late. I don't know. I was still awake. Shanti was asleep next to me in the bed. And I was like, Lord, you're awesome. I love you so much. God, you know, if I'm useless to you, just kill me now and take me home to be with you. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, I thought, oh, man, God's going to kill me tonight. Like, surely I am useless to him. Like, what is this? This is the dumbest prayer I've ever prayed. So then I start to negotiate. I was like, well, God, I mean, you know, I'm not a total failure. I, I can still do some good things here or there, you know. I, I can still help out at church. I can still help people coming in, you know, maybe usher duty, something like that. You know, I, I, got, some, I got some time left here, right? Like, I'm not a total failure. I went to sleep that night. I didn't really know what to expect. I woke up the next morning. And I was reading in the Psalms, rejoice, for this is the day that the Lord has made. Brothers and sisters, we have a job to do for the Lord. We have a ministry to perform. We have a testimony to give. We have a world that is watching. And if we try to take our understanding of our ministry from the world, then our value, our, our sense of accomplishment before the Lord is going to be constantly called into question. But if we look to the Lord and what he says in his word, if we will see whether or not our ministry, our service, or our testimony is accepted to him, acceptable to him, then nothing can shake us. Nothing can move us. On the night, on the week that Christ was to be crucified, A woman broke a jar and poured it, poured the expensive perfume all over Jesus. And Judas immediately calls it into question. All the disciples join him. (laughs) In Mark chapter 14, it says they scolded her. You claim to be a follower of Jesus? And you broke this jar of ointment? You poured it all over him? Man, it could have been used for so many other better ministries. It could have accomplished so much more. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've given testimony. You've been in that situation. It's gone sideways. People have twisted your words, misquoted you, refused to listen. You're thinking to yourself, did I do it right? Surely the problem is with me. The Holy Spirit works. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. 
The convicting power of the Holy Spirit cannot be overthrown and the truth cannot be denied or ignored. If we minister, let us minister with a clear conscience and let us serve the Lord with love and sound doctrine. And if we do those things, it is accepted by God. They scolded her. And Jesus says, on behalf of this woman, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Your ministry does not hang, it does not live or die based on what the world thinks of your service. Whether your ministry or your testimony is accepted by the world is not what is of ultimate priority. It is accepted by the Lord. He says, don't trouble her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. He goes on. He says, you have always had the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. The world in condemning Christians for their ministry, always talks in generalities. You could have done this. You could have served in this way. You could have achieved this great thing. We're here to serve individuals, real people. And if God gives us the opportunity of someone standing right in front of us, we serve that person, we minister to that person. And Christ accepts it. He says, she has done what she could. In other words, she took the opportunity she had and she used it. And he receives that. And so as we conclude this morning, what I want you to know, if you have a clear conscience and sound doctrine, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. The Apostle Paul makes this statement in 1 Timothy, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If we minister with those, it's accepted by the Lord. And that cheers us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for what you did through the Apostle Paul, though it resulted in the chaos that ensued that followed him. Lord, they did not hear, they would not hear, they rejected and twisted your word. Nevertheless, Paul testified to the facts, and you accepted it. As your people are here this morning, undoubtedly, there are some who are wondering, did we do enough? Was it sufficient? Our prayer, Lord, this morning is that you would just come to us, those of us who may be struggling with that question, that you would just speak to our hearts this morning and remind us. We don't serve the world, ultimately. It's what we're doing for you. It is ultimately a ministry to you. Where we lack, you supply. Where we fall short, you make up the difference. Where our words come out confused and jumbled, the truth is unstoppable. And where we're not sure we're being persuasive enough, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and his ministry can never be overthrown. 
Lord, your people come to you this morning. We are children in the hands of the Father. We recognize that our efforts, our best efforts, sometimes look like nothing better than those scrawled pictures that little children draw for their parents that get hung up on the fridge. We look at those pictures years later, and we wonder, is it good enough? It looks pretty bad sometimes. But you reassure us as our Father that you take what we give and you make it beautiful. We love you, Lord, and we pray, God, for those who are struggling today, wondering if it's enough, if they've done enough. We pray, Lord, that they would trust in your Son, that what he has accomplished on the cross more than suffices. Where we lack, you meet us there and provide all that is necessary. We love you, God. We pray you'd work in our hearts this morning. Cheer us through your presence, by your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.